Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Today is Rishi Sunak's 45th day in power. That's already one more than Liz Truss managed, but how is he getting on? He's in an unenviable position for any prime minister. He's facing nationwide strikes. What do you want? What do you want it now? As a winter of industrial action looms, now a date is set for the biggest nurses' strike in a hundred years. On the trains, on the roads, and at airports. Postal workers, teachers in Scotland and university staff. Strike action is bringing Britain's transport network to a halt. A cost of living crisis. In the city centre they're getting ready for Christmas. Hard to feel tempted by the festive treats when inflation for basics like bread and milk is at a 40-year high. And a stampede of backbench MPs announcing that they won't be sticking around. Matt Hancock is not going to stand as an MP at the next general election. The former Chancellor, Sajid Javid, has said that he will not stand at the next general election. Conservative MPs, former Cabinet Minister Chloe Smith and the Permanent Committee Chairman William Wragg announced they wouldn't be standing again. As the polls continue to suggest a heavy Conservative loss at the next election, What impact has the Prime Minister had in his first few weeks in power? You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, Rishi Sunak's Winter of Discontent. I'm Henry Zeffman, and I am Associate Political Editor of The Times. Henry, Monday was the sort of soft deadline for Tory MPs to inform the party whether they would be standing again at the next election. Just describe what the last few weeks have been like in Westminster, what you've been hearing, the moments when you've heard some of the people who won't be standing, and what we can expect in, in the weeks and months to come on that score. I think the last few weeks were best summarised to me by a former Conservative minister, and there's rather a lot of those about at the moment, given how many governments we've chopped through in short order. If you're in the Tory party and you haven't been a minister, it's, it's a <laughs> bit of really an You're really doing something wrong, exactly. <laughs> well, this person did something right in the eyes of one of the three prime ministers this year, but not the other two. And they said to me, the Conservative party and the government at the moment are stable, 
but not strong, in an adaptation, of course, of Theresa May's slogan, Strong and Stable. And the point they were making is that things have calmed down a lot. This is not like the half of the year in which Boris Johnson's leadership was in constant peril. It's certainly not like the frenetic 40-something days of Liz Truss. Hmm. But there is this undercurrent of despair among Conservative MPs because it is very hard, if not impossible, to find a Conservative MP who thinks that they are on course to win the next election. One of the many symptoms of that despair is, as you mentioned, the number of MPs who've said they're standing down. And the reason you're getting that now is both technical and serious. The technical reason is that the boundaries for parliamentary constituencies are all being changed. And that means that some MPs find themselves with their constituency being chopped up. And that means that Conservative MPs are being asked by Conservative headquarters to tell them now whether they intend to stand at the next election so that they can start dealing with some of the difficult cases where you might have three Conservative MPs who need to be made to fit into two new constituencies. Mm. But there's the underlying reason why so many are taking that as an opportunity to say, actually, yeah, I'm out. And that underlying reason is that Conservative MPs are adapting to a new reality, as they see it, in which they are likely to find themselves in opposition after the next election. So they're not just thinking, do I want to stand at the next election? They're thinking, do I have the stomach to be in opposition potentially up until late 2029, which is quite a long time away? Mm. And out of the huge cascade of names we were suddenly getting of people who were going to be stepping back, which were the most surprising? Which caused the real ripples across Westminster? I think there have been two that are very significant in slightly different ways, not just in and of themselves, but in terms of what they tell you about how Conservative MPs are thinking at the moment. Now, one of them is Sajid Javid. He's done almost every cabinet job of significance. <laughs> he ran for leader twice, most recently this year, right? So this summer. If we can unite behind a new sense of purpose with the right leadership, but most importantly, the right team. After Boris Johnson resigned, he wanted to be prime minister. I believe that we can meet the scale of our challenges and that we can come through them with the best days still lying ahead. And instead, he's now saying that he doesn't want to be an MP after the next election. Now, what does that tell you? It tells you that Sajid Javid realises that he's probably not going to get back into cabinet or almost certainly not in the kind of job that he would want. But it also tells you that MPs like Sajid Javid, who might have been in ministerial jobs, who came in like Sajid Javid in 2010 in that Cameron wave where he brought the Conservatives back to their promised land of government, an A-lister, part of David Cameron's attempts to make the Conservative Parliamentary Party more diverse, more modern, mm. that they are seeing this coming election, lots of them, as the sort of end of that era, as the end of the period of Conservative government. So Javid, very significant because he, as well as being a figure of significance himself in our politics, speaks to that phase of British political life. But I think even more significant, someone called Deanna Davison, who most people outside of SW1, I mean, the vast majority, almost everyone in the country will not really have heard of. She's high profile in Westminster, but not so much in the country. 
My name is Deanna Davison and I'm the newly elected MP for Bishop Auckland. I accidentally discovered politics at 16, joined the Conservative Party, and here I am today in Parliament, able to make those changes that our country badly needs. Deanna Davison is 29 years old. She was elected the MP for Bishop Auckland in 2019. She was a poster child of the Boris Johnson coalition. Mm. Passionate Brexiteer, winning a seat that was traditionally Labour. And she herself, again, a, this was kind of symptomatic of her generation, was a bit different. She had been on reality TV to do with having married, though I think they're now separated, a man who's decades older than her. These Prince Charming is John, who at 59 is 35 years older than her. It's a big step to propose, and she said yes. I did. When I told my family that John and I are going to get married, it was a difficult reaction. There's definitely been some uncertainty from, you know, some of my family members. She is on TikTok. She has campaigned very movingly about issues relating to her father, who, when she was a child, was killed in a fight in a pub. Much of the reason that I stand in this chamber today follows a chain reaction of events following the death of my father from a single punch assault. But my dad is just one of many victims, which is why this week we are marking One Punch Awareness Week. She is not the kind of person who was a Conservative MP at the start of this period of Conservative government in 2010, mm. you know, still less in the sort of fusty decades before that. And she's only just become a minister. She became a minister at the Department for Leveling Up when Liz Truss became prime minister. She'd backed Liz Truss's campaign and Rishi Sunak kept her on. And people from all wings of the Conservative Party, actually, have been saying to me for ages, you know, not only is she high profile, she's actually really good. She's going to mm. go far. And so it was genuinely startling to find that she doesn't want her parliamentary career to last beyond the next election. When from all the sort of demographic indicators, age, being on the lowest rung of the ministerial ladder etc. She ought to be at the start of a long political career. She ought to be looking at this potential period of opposition, if it is that, and thinking, I could play a big part in rebuilding the Conservative Party. So you know, for her to be packing it in is very significant indeed. And she really was seen as the future of the party. And if even the, if the future is now turning away, you're in a world of trouble. For those who haven't already declared that they're stepping down, I mean, that wasn't a hard and fast deadline for a start, so we might see more people coming out over the next few months. But for those who are still on the back benches, all is not rosy. Talk us through some of the rebellions that have been brewing. Where is all the discontent coming from? Well, as we mentioned earlier, there's rather a lot of former ministers in the Conservative Parliamentary former Party at the moment. Too, at this stage. Indeed. I mean, there is, in fact, an unprecedented number of living former prime ministers in the country and two of them in the House of Commons. Three of them, sorry. God, I forgot, forgot about <laughs> Theresa May there. She was only prime minister three years ago. What you have in the House of Commons at the moment is a very complex, overlapping web of political divides ideological divides and bluntly personal divides in the Conservative Party. Mm. And there's no greater example of that than a piece of legislation that's going through the House of Commons at the moment called the Leveling Up and Regeneration Bill, being spearheaded by Michael Gove, who is now again the Leveling Up Secretary. And there have been two rebellions on this that have completely stalled the progress of the legislation. Now, I think the most illustrative one of what a complex web of politics the Conservative Party is currently in is a rebellion to do with onshore wind farms. 
And he's actually had to backpedal on that issue in the last 24 hours. But just talk us through how that rebellion played out. David Cameron, having previously ridden Huskies as leader of the opposition to show how green he was, imposed a ban on new onshore wind when he was prime minister. We're going to be having a a decent amount of onshore wind, but the fact is we don't need any more than what we've got in the planning system. We've now got enough to meet targets, make sure our energy is diversified. We haven't had any more consent given to onshore wind farms for six or seven years. A large number, 30 in fact, more than 30, of Conservative MPs have signed an amendment to the levelling up bill which would repeal that ban. Now that's important because Rishi Sunak made it a core pledge of his leadership campaign in the summer, the one he Mm. lost, but we assume he still holds this view, that there would be no new onshore wind when he was Prime Minister. Look, when it comes to energy policy, I stick by what we said uh, in our manifesto, Mr Speaker. The important thing is, though, to focus on our long-term energy security. That means more renewables, more offshore wind and indeed more nuclear. Now, let's just get under the bonnet of this rebellion a bit and bear with me but there's a lot going on here. The rebellion was being spearheaded by a man called Simon Clark, who was briefly levelling up secretary under Liz Truss, responsible for spearheading this legislation. The rebellion has been joined by not only Liz Truss, a former prime minister, rebelling against her successor. That's very unusual. To be fair to Liz Truss, she had argued for the repeal of that ban. So she's being ideologically consistent. Then you've got another former prime minister on this rebellion, Boris Johnson. Boris Johnson was Prime Minister for three years in which this ban on onshore wind remained in force and never showed any inclination whatsoever to overturn it, despite sort of having as his catchphrase that he wanted to turn the UK into the Saudi Arabia of wind. So why might Boris Johnson be joining this rebellion? Oh yeah, he loathes Rishi Sunak and he wants to be Prime Minister again. And yes, I promise you, Stories of Our Times listeners, Boris Johnson still thinks he can be Prime Minister again before the next election. So that's why Boris Johnson's involved. Then with him come a load of Johnsonites, people who I frankly don't think are that interested in this issue, but are enjoying the possibility of giving Rishi Sunak a bit of a bloody nose. But then there are loads of people who are sort of passionate green Tories who do really think that the UK needs to produce more onshore wind, even though they're not particularly Johnsonites. So you've got this overlapping web of personal, political, ideological grievance all coming together. So the legislation has been delayed, but it is an extraordinary thing for a government with a majority of, I think it's now about 70 to not be able to pass its legislation. And it just goes to show that the Conservative Party is in a divided and pretty febrile place. On Tuesday night, that incredibly mixed coalition won. Rishi Sunak caved in. The rebellion was averted when the Department of Communities issued a statement. The government will launch a consultation which will pave the way for allowing wind turbines on land if there was local support. The climb down came hot on the heels of another U-turn on the same bill about house building targets the day before. The levelling up secretary Michael Gove has dropped the compulsory house building targets in a bid to prevent a backbench rebellion. On Times Radio, Patrick Maguire asked the station's chief political commentator, Lucy Fisher, what this would mean for Rishi Sunak's position. 
Is this a sign of the government's weakness and will this sort of fudge designed to placate both sides hold? Well, let's see. I think you're right, Patrick, about the weakness it projects on on Rishi Sunak's side. You know, he's going to potentially be buffeted on a number of other difficult issues coming up in, in the year ahead as well. Coming up, what does the state of the Conservative Party say about the Prime Minister? But first... I'm Tony Gallagher, the editor of The Times. I have the best job in journalism. Every day, my team endeavours to bring you the best stories, the most incisive commentary, topical features, beautifully illustrated with award-winning photographs. But we can only do this thanks to the subscribers of The Times and Sunday Times. Subscribe today by visiting thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Henry, for Rishi Sunak, from what we've heard already... He's got what feels like an implicit vote of no confidence from the Tory MPs who've decided they don't want to hang around after the next election. That doesn't sound massively supportive. We've got rebellion on the back benches brewing. So he's going to have to spend a lot of his time on internal communications, on strategizing on how to cope with his own MPs. That's before we get to the problems outside. And this all comes at a time that I think we are calling yet again a winter of discontent. 
Tell us about some of the external problems he, he faces, not least at the moment, with strikes. Well, strikes is one of the huge problems facing Rishi Sunak, and it's not clear that he can solve it within his own ideological parameters. You know, remember what that leadership election between him and Liz Truss was really about. It was about how you solve the UK's economic problems. And Rishi Sunak's view was the number one enemy is inflation. Inflation is the enemy that makes everybody poorer. It erodes your savings. It erodes your living standards. It means that those of you that have mortgages will see your interest rates go up higher and higher. Inflation will be solved or will come down in part if the public and private sectors show wage restraint, as he would have it. That is ideologically irreconcilable with the key demand of all of the striking workers in whatever sector they may be, mm. which mostly boil down to wanting pay rises which match or exceed or come quite close to inflation. So I find it very hard to see how a lot of these disputes get resolved. There's some sort of cautious optimism in parts of government that the rail dispute might get resolved sooner rather than later, but that's partly because it's been running for a lot longer. Mm. Whereas you've got the new wave of disputes, particularly in the NHS, where it's not just nurses, but ambulance workers and could well end up being far broader. That is obviously a huge problem for Rishi Sunak. And it is a little bit in question what his political vision to lead the Conservatives through what will be a difficult winter is. Mm. I was speaking to a, a government minister the other day. This was just after the autumn statement. And they were saying to me, look, Rishi's job, the thing he promised us in that very brief second leadership election he would do was get us to this point, get us to the autumn statement, reverse most of Liz Truss's policies with finance on side, you know, without the city freaking out, with the UK's international reputation in check and with the Conservative Party just about still bound together. And he's managed that. Good for him. Thank you. But then they said, I'm paraphrasing, obviously, what's the vision for after that? Mm. I don't know, they were saying. I'm I'm eager to go along with it. I want to be led, but I don't know what it is. Is it just bland technocracy trying to run the state a bit better and hoping that something politically might turn up, which means that Labour's poll lead narrows? Now, I, speaking now, me, I think the signs are that it is because Rishi Sunak has not, I think, articulated to the Conservative Party and still less to the country mm. what the sort of broader mission of his government is beyond just keeping things a bit calmer than they were during Liz Truss and at the end of Boris Johnson's governments. It's so telling to hear senior figures within the party saying they don't know what that vision is. I think for the country, you know, you're suddenly starting to see a spate of strikes being announced. Everything's on hold, nothing's working. You've got health potentially for the first time, people walking out, nurses walking out, that hasn't happened before. It shows the anger in those professions. It shows anger with everybody in terms of their wages, but also... Life is becoming really disrupted. Things aren't working. Are people worried that the country will lose confidence in this government's ability to govern if nothing seems to work? Massively. I mean, that's a big theme of conversations I have with Conservative MPs because they don't think they will be rewarded at the next election for a faltering country, as you put it, basically. Some of them hope that the public support for industrial action will evaporate. Some of them hope that 
by the government gripping inflation. If inflation starts to come down next year, government might be able to cut taxes a little bit and then suddenly the mood will be a lot different. The, the government will be able to give people in the public sector meaningful real terms pay increases. But a lot of them basically just look at this situation and think, yeah, no, we're going to lose the next election. And all of this comes this winter of things stopping working in what we already knew would be the cost of living crisis. This, this was something that was known when Rishi Sunak stood for the leadership. We don't seem to be hearing much about it, though, not from the government. If you look at the papers in the last few days, you've got Keir Starmer talking about the government not doing enough about the cost of living crisis. We don't hear them talking about it. Is there much leadership coming from Rishi Sunak and the cabinet on how we navigate it? I think the government's answer to that is to bring inflation down. Mm. And that requires the tax rises of the autumn statement and the pay restraint that they are encouraging the private sector to show and are making the public sector show. It's a slightly uh, technical second order argument to make, but I think that is the government's argument. Of course, there's still the support on energy prices, although that was slightly scaled back in the autumn statement. But I think it gets to what we were just talking about, which is that Conservative MPs are beginning, I think, to get a little bit uneasy. Rishi Sunak's ability or inability, as some of them would see it, to articulate to the country, to sort of narrate to the country what he's doing and why he's doing it and how it relates to their day-to-day lives. And Henry, when you're in Westminster and you're talking to MPs and they're there is just this sense that they've slightly given up. They don't think they're going to win anyway. Does that, in a way, slow down the urgency of policy? Does it make it less worthwhile pursuing unpopular policies that might be needed to try and fix things? I mean, how does it change the ability of government to actually get things done? I think it certainly slows down all sorts of things in Westminster. I mean, I was chatting to, calling all sorts of MPs about all sorts of different things last week, but one of the most common things people said to me was, oh, look, I'm just I'm just not really saying or doing anything controversial, Henry, this side of Christmas because I'm tired and I'm desperate for Christmas. It's been a mad year. Ask me again in January. There is, I think, just a mood of complete exhaustion. But also, you know, we were talking about how in practice Rishi Sunak's Commons majority is much more fragile than the numbers would in theory suggest. And that obviously slows down the pace of government. I mean, the levelling up bill was meant to have its report stage, I think it was, which is one of the final stages in the House of Commons a couple of weeks ago at the time that we're recording this. And it was punted into the long grass indefinitely. And that means that the bill, I think they still say it's probably going to be heard before Christmas, but it might not be. That is a clear, tangible piece of evidence that the business of government has been slowed down by the complex and increasingly fractious politics of the Conservative Party. does start to sound very dysfunctional. One of the other criticisms that we've heard levelled at Rishi Sunak and his approach to, you know, what is a crisis, the cost of living crisis, is that he's just distracted because he's having to do so much of the work on immigration at the moment and that's become such a priority and he seems to be handling so much of it himself that he doesn't have the, the bandwidth, the space to be able to look at cost of living. Talk us through what's happening on immigration, because in a way, I think people might sort of look at it as a crisis of the Conservative Party's own making. 
certainly it is a preoccupation of Conservative MPs from the most junior MPs right up to the top of government. They believe that they need to solve the small boats issue or they will not win the next election. Uh, I was speaking, in fact, to a minister this morning and they said to me, there are two things on which we will be judged at the next election. One is the economy and the other is small boats. So in that context, I think that helps to explain why it's such a priority for Rishi Sunak. We've also reported, my colleagues, in the last few days that Rishi Sunak himself is taking a very, very direct personal involvement in the issue and is leading a lot of meetings on this himself and getting quite granular which is interesting. I mean, you know, to his critics, that would be micromanaging. But I think a lot of people would think, well, yeah, absolutely. You know, that shows that it's a prime ministerial focus. It does make it a little bit harder for him, if he's so closely associated with the government's policy in this area, to distance himself from the problems if it's not fixed. So, Henry, I mean, sometimes, you know, they always said it was a week is a long time in politics. It sort of feels like the last few months, time has just operated very weirdly. Sometimes it's odd to remember just how recently Boris Johnson was still prime minister. But Rishi Sunak has only been in office for six weeks. It is important to get, to get that in context. It hasn't actually been that long. How do we think he's doing? You know, there is a lot of criticism around at the moment about him being weak. Is that sticking? I hadn't actually realised it's only been six weeks. I know, it's alarming, isn't it? Which I think means I need to cut him a bit more slack in the answer (laughs) to your question than I probably would otherwise have done. I think the view of most Conservative MPs I speak to would give him a sort of B+. They would say that he stabilised an extraordinarily unstable situation, both politically and economically. International finance is more relaxed about Britain's stability now. Conservative MPs aren't sort of openly feuding with each other in the corridors of Parliament now. However, I think the gaping question about Rishi Sunak's prime ministership remains, what next? What is the vision for Rishi Sunak, both in terms of his management of the country over the coming 18 months or however long he has before the next election, but also for a Conservative MP... What is his vision for winning that election? You've got to start making the case now. And understandably, the start of his government has been about mopping up the mistakes of his predecessor, if not predecessors. But he is going to have to start articulating something about the future because all the polling would suggest that at the moment, Labour are heading back into government and Rishi Sunak is leading the Conservative Party into opposition. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times, with me, Manveen Rana, and my guest, Times Associate Political Editor, Henry Zeffman. You can read more of Henry's work at thetimes.co.uk with a subscription or in print. The producer today was Edward Drummond, The executive producers were Kate Ford and James Shield, and sound design was by David Crackles. If you can, please do leave us a review. It'll help others to find this episode. Thanks again for listening. See you tomorrow. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. 
Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.